0: Alright, we have been, over the uh, past month, been looking at Christ, the, uh, focusing on the Christ and specifically we've been looking at the shadow of Christ right now, um, coming out of Christmas, considering the fact that, that um, the coming of Christ shouldn't have been the entirety of the ministry that it was to many of that day, though the timing would have been a mystery. The fact that he was coming should not have been a mystery. God had laid out a lot of indicators throughout the the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, regarding Christ's coming and the nature of his coming. And uh, we have been considering that over the past few weeks. And uh, we began by looking in Genesis chapter 1, considering um, Yahweh of Shabbat and Yahweh of creation and how Jesus is seen to be those. And Jesus said that he was the Lord of the, the Sabbath and the importance of that not just a matter of the rest for man, was the fact that the Lord of the Sabbath was also the Lord of creation. And so Jesus claimed at that point that he was the creator God, that he was Yahweh. And, um, and so we see all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2, there was an indicator of the coming of Christ. And in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, we saw the fall of man, we saw the curse. Um, we also saw, though, the cure of that as well. And in the midst of the curse... Um, to the woman, we saw that, that her seed and the seed of the, the serpent would be uh, mortal enemies, if you would, and that the, the seed of the the, um, the serpent would strike the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush the head or bruise the head of the seed of the uh, serpent. And so we saw there that not only then would Christ be Messiah to come, would be God, he would also be God in the flesh, he would be True man. So as he was true God, he would also be true man. We then saw the book of Job um, and all the afflictions of Job. We talked about that. But in the midst of the book of Job, we read an incredible statement by Job. Again, he was a contemporary of Noah and Abraham. And where he said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And after my flesh is decayed, destroyed, rotten. I know that I will see him face to face in the flesh which means that he understood the whole concept of resurrection. He knew that though his body would be decayed and destroyed, that he would be given a new body, and that God being his Redeemer, he would see him face to face. That's an incredible statement of something that um, we sometimes think of cavemen and and all these kind of things because we're influenced by evolution and all these other um, worldly thoughts. But clearly, God had laid out already for the people at that time A basic understanding that he would be their redeemer, that he would be the one who would come and to purchase them back from their sin. Last week we began looking at Avram, or Abraham, and we saw that Jesus was considered to be the seed of Abraham. And we saw that, by extension, those who by faith come to Christ also then are the seed of Abraham as well. And we saw then, within the blessing, that that we were to be a blessing to to the world, just as Christ was to be a blessing to the world as well. And last week, then as I, I talked, I said that we we're going to be spending a, a couple more times looking at Abraham and some little vignettes in Abraham. And today we want to look at one in Genesis um, chapter 14. You can turn there, Genesis 14. We've already read um, Hebrews 6, 19 down through 7, and we're going to come back to that later on. But a little passage, just a couple of verses in the in the 14th chapter of Genesis 17 to 24 that Honestly, is a parenthetical thought to everything else that's going on. Lot chose to Abraham's nephew. Lot chose to go live um, in the um, the valley, the, the Jordan Valley near Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, along with some other cities, are being attacked by five other kings. They're taken as prisoners and, and they're taken away. Abraham gets word that his, his nephew Lot is being captured, and he goes out with his three hundred men, three hundred big army and along with the the servants of some of his neighbors, and they attack these four or five kings. They destroy them. They get um, Lot back, along with all Lot's properties. But not only do they get Lot and his property back, but they also free all the the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their their stuff as well. And so that's where we pick up the story in Genesis 14, um, beginning at 17. I want to read this, um, and then we'll talk about it. And it says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is, Avram, at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of kedil and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, the king of Shalom, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered you your enemies into your hand. And he, that is, Abram, gave him, that is, Melchizedek, a tithe of all." Now the king of Sodom said to Avram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Avram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of the heaven and the earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Avram rich." except only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the young men who went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So, in that little segment, that's kind of a side segment of what's going on here, we see Melchizedek. This guy named Melchizedek coming, and, and, and Abram apparently knows him. And, and Abram gives him a tithe of everything, and, and Melchizedek blesses him. And so I want to look at this, and... As we see this interaction between Abraham and Melchizedek, there are three indicators regarding our relationship to God, okay? What was the first thing that we see when um, Abram and Melchizedek meet? Well, first of all, their reputations. We see the guy named Melchizedek. Well, Melchizedek, Melchizedek is actually Melchizedek. And Melchizedek actually means, as we saw in the book of Hebrews, the king of righteousness. Melchi, it means king or my king, and Zedek is righteousness. So my king is righteousness. But he's also referred to as the king of Shalem, which is a derivative of, anybody want to guess? Shalom. Okay. So in the, in the book of Hebrews, we read that he's called the king of peace. It would be more like peacefulness, if you would, um, tranquility. Um, so he's the king of peace, the king of the king of peacefulness. And so we, we know that Jesus, and this is kind of an aside, we'll talk about this later on with the fulfillment of it. We know that the king of righteousness has got to be Christ. We know that the prince of peace is Jesus. Okay. And so this individual, though, get rid of the prophetic side for a moment, come back to the practical, because that's what we're looking at. The first thing that Abram knew about this, this man, this individual, Melchizedek, okay, and we're not going to de- define right now whether this is, um, A pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to tell you whether this is Shem. Many people think this might be Shem. Or whether this is really a Canaanite guy other than one of those guys who's a priest. I don't know. Okay? I know he's a type of Christ. Okay? But here's what I know. That when he came, Abram recognized him. And he had a name. In fact, he had two names which he was referred to as. He was referred to as a king of righteousness and he was referred to as a king of peace. Now, Shalem, Salem, was the precursor to Jerusalem, Jerusalem. okay? Um, and so it could be that he actually was the, the king of, of Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Okay. An interesting little aside here is in the book of Joshua. When, when Joshua it goes to the defense of Gibeon, the Gibeonites who had the ruse and deceived them. Do you all remember that? Okay? When the Gibeonites were attacked, does anybody remember who was the, the, the uh, head of the five kings that brought the kings together to, to attack Gibeon? No, it wasn't Cato Larimer. No, he's, he's gone. He's dead already. It was a guy named Adonizadek, Zadek. Okay? So, if you take Zadek, get rid of Melchi, put in Adonai. Adonai. Okay? is King Adonai, means Lord. Okay, I've always kind of played with it in my mind. I wonder if this guy, Adonaz- Adonazadek, happens to be a, a uh, what do you call it, um, descendant of Melchizedek. I don't know. Um, but he, Adonazadek also was the king of Salem as well back at that time. He was reigning over the Jebusites, which was also Jerusalem at that time. So, anyway, kind of a little aside, a little if I hopefully maybe... For some of you that might have prodded your mind, and you're going to go home and do a Bible study this week on that just to figure it all out. Okay? So, but Melchizedek clearly has a what? He has a reputation. What about Abraham? Abram has a reputation too. Because the first thing that comes out of Melchizedek's mouth is what? Blessed. Blessed. Blessed are you. You are a blessed individual. Now we know that he's the the, the priest of who? Yahweh. Not just God most high, but Yahweh. I mean, we're actually told that he's. He is a priest of Yahweh, God Most High, and so he's a believing priest, which is very important, okay? And he turns around to Abraham and says, listen, I recognize the fact that you are blessed of the Lord God Most High, possessor of the heavens and the earth. And not only are you blessed, but you're blessed of God Most High. And so, not only is Melchizedek just saying, you're, clearly you've got a lot of stuff, you must be really blessed, but he recognizes where the blessing is from, which is an indicator of Abraham's reputation in the area that Abraham must be a follower of God Most High, Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Okay? We talked about that a little bit last week. Remember from Abraham's background, where he came from, what do we read from Joshua 24 about Abraham's family? What were they like? Yeah, they served other gods. They were from Ur, they served other gods. They were it was a pagan family. They didn't follow Yahweh. And so Abram has changed his whole focus in life to now it's known that Abram is an adamant follower of Yahweh, the Lord God Most High, possessor of the heavens and the earth. To see Abraham, to see Abram, is to know that. Now, having reputations is extremely important. I want to bring up another guy here. He's not in this this, uh, place at all, but... Names are important, okay, throughout the Bible. And so we have Melchizedek. We have Abram, which we didn't talk about, who becomes Abraham, the father of many nations, okay? And his name is important, and his reputation is important. There's a guy in the in New Testament whose name is Theophilus. Luke is writing to him, and he, and he says, in Luke 1, he says, It seemed good to me, also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, O most excellent Theophilus. And then in Acts 1, Luke is writing again, and he's actually continuing his account, um, to Theophilus. So those two books are really written to an individual named Theophilus. Well, Theophilus is made from two Greek words, theos and phylos, okay? Which means a friend of or lover of God. That's what his name means. And so there are some who debate whether this is actually an individual or whether Luke is actually writing to a friend of God. Does that make sense? And so it's if you read it and you're the friend of God, he's writing to you, okay? But names mean something, in Old Testament times, we've gotten away from that a lot in, in naming kids. You know, we just kind of, we named them after movie stars. It's kind of interesting. We were talking, um, I heard Marcia talking to someone recently about the kids in our, our CEF club. A lot of them have the names of, um, and of Green Gables characters. Okay? And I made the comment. I said, well, "Wow, it's really interesting. I wonder when that remake was made. Because they said that it was originally made in the 50s. And I said, well, the ones that we watch weren't made in the 50s, you know. So, I wonder when this remake that we watch." Then was made. It'd be interesting to know if it was made about ten years ago. You know, in that somewhere in that eight to fifteen years ago range. And so all of a sudden, because it's amazing when you go out there and you see the names of kids. You think you named your kid something special, but all of a sudden, fifteen years from now, when they're hanging out with all these people, how many different kids have that name? And you thought it was something special, you know? And all of a sudden, it happened. And subliminally, I wonder if something's going on in our culture. And all of a sudden, we, we all name it after that. Well, wouldn't it be neat if people were really named? Something important, and so my question to you would be: What would be your reputation, and what would you be called? Would you be called Weefalus? Balphilis? Melky shopping? I mean, if if people said we're gonna we're gonna give you a biblical name, you know, we're we're gonna bring this together. What would you be called? Would you be Theophilus? Would you be Melchizedek? Or would you be Weefalus? Sad to say, I mean, I wouldn't tell you what I probably would. Anyways, you know, but. Clearly, all those you know could be indicators of me, or well, not uh, shopping, shopping, not in the chat, probably not. But anyways, those first two, filous and the the and ballfilous, that could definitely be me. Okay, and so what would you be called? The reality is, then, we ought to strive to be called Theophilus, Melchizedek, someone where righteousness reigns as king, where righteousness is reigning in our lives where God is that which we love. The second indicator of the relationship with God we saw was Abram's giving. Think of what happened in this passage when El- Abram was there, he has all this stuff. I mean, he's got the whole booty, right? And in comes Melchizedek. Melchizedek doesn't say, hey, buddy, you need to give me a tithe. Hey, buddy, you need to give me an offering immediately, Abram does what? He gives. And he gives willingly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, we read, But this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word therefore cheerful is the word for hilarious in the Greek. Like laughing, just so overwhelmingly joyful about giving. In other words, this isn't, there's no begrudging at all. There's no like, I've got to pay a bill, I guess. You know, oh, i got to do this. Oh, here, God's going to get his again. It's, I want to give. I want to bless God. And note the promise that's in here. If you sow sparingly, what's going to happen? You reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. You can't, and this is an old cliche. You all know it. You can't what, outgive God. That's exactly right. You can't outgive God. God owns everything, and I mean, and I've shared the illustration in the past. When I was in seminary, my in my budget, what I budgeted to spend, necessities, was greater than what I expected to have as income, and if I got nervous and started paying my bills first and everything, I never had enough. To a tithe. But if I would just tithe first, trust in God, guess what would happen? I always had a surplus. I don't get it. Math-wise, it didn't make sense to me. You know? But it always happened that way. Are you willing to give willingly? But what we saw what Abram gave was what? A tithe. What's a tithe? One-tenth. One-tenth of, of the gross... Not of the net. So, everything he got, he brought in. He gave to Melchizedek one-tenth of it. Now, people say, well, that's an Old Testament thing. Really? Well, I go to the teachings of Jesus. Notice what Jesus says about the tithe. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay a tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So he says, listen... The more important things are justice, mercy, and faith. You need to, you, if you're not doing that, your works are meaningless. You've you got to have the right heart. But now that you do that, don't leave the others undone. What was the other things that he was talking about? Tithing. I don't think this is an old covenant thing. You know, People come in the new covenant with this passage we just read in 2 Corinthians 9. He says, God, New Testament is proportional giving. It's just, you purpose it in your heart. It's purposeful proportionate proportion of giving. And so it doesn't have to be a tithe. It's whatever, whatever you want to give to God, whatever you feel is right before God. And I say, really, why would, when has God ever changed his standards from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant? Can you murder now? No. Can you commit adultery now? No. Stealing, for sure. Stealing, it doesn't matter now, right? You can steal now. What about coveting? Is coveting okay now? Why is it then, when we come to tithing, that we think God's standards have lowered? Maybe, just as Jesus in in the, um, the, the Sermon on the Mount intensified the commandments. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, now that's a physical thing, right? But I say unto you, if you lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. He didn't minimize it, he didn't lower the standard, he did what? He increased it. If that's the case with all the standards of God, and when he brings it into the new covenant, why do I think he's changed it when it comes to giving? He hasn't. In fact, in Malachi chapter 3, God says, Will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me? But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes, the tenth parts, into the storehouse, That there may be food in my house. And try me. This is the only thing that God has ever said test me in. Jesus said what? You shouldn't what? Test the Lord your God, right? But God, this is the only place where God has ever said test me. Try me. See if I'm not true. He says, try me now in this, says the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will be not room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of the ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. God says that if you are not at least tithing, that you are stealing from God. And if you don't, he's going to let the devourer in the fields. I wonder sometimes, you know, and I'm going to say this, and my, my water heater is going to go out this week, right? I already know it's, 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 it's at that 15-year mark. So, But, you know, God can keep... Water heaters go in a long time. And God can allow water heaters to go out like that. God can cause your gas mileage to be 10 miles at a gallon, and He can cause your 10 gas mileage to be 25 miles at a gallon. You get what I'm saying? I'm picking mundane things here, okay? He can cause that all of a sudden you're at, the, you're at Kroger's and they're running the, a sale that you didn't know about, and you're able to get all your food half price. He's able for you to make, have relationships with people who give you special deals on things. God can cause your money to go a whole lot further than what you ever imagined it could go. But God can also siphon that same money. Those who steal from God never gain. Because God can get it back. Just in ways that you think were circumstances. It's just as we talked about two years ago when we went through the book of Revelation. We talked about the wrath of God. The wrath of God very seldom is volitional, or uh, volitional, um, is uh, active. Does that make sense? Many times the the wrath of God is seen as him taking his hand off of you provision and protectionally. Do, Do you understand what I'm saying? And so he says, you go do it. You want to be God? You handle it. You want to be in charge of your finances? You handle it. Get it? And so God says, fine, you want... You're not going to give me mine. You go handle it yourself. And what happens when we handle ourselves? it ourselves? We, we have bags of holes in the bottom. That's exactly right. Okay. Say again? We get selfish. But none of that, he's not, he's not, he's not protecting. I, I mean, I, I think, honestly, you know, I think my, let's say my hot water heater is supposed to go out in 15 years. After 15 years. Is that the 15-year mark right now. Honestly, I think my, my water heater probably could last 30 years. If God wanted it to. Does that make sense? And I'm not saying he will, but he, it could. It could last 30 years. You meet people sometimes and you go, wow, how does that thing keep lasting? You know, you think about my vehicle sometimes. You know, how do they keep running, you know? Well, God is blessing, and I'm not putting myself up on that, but, but it's amazing sometimes. God can cause those things to continue to, to run. You know, I don't have to have a new one every four years or every three years, or every two years. I can have that thing paid off and continue to allow it to, to keep going. And God... Freeze up funds in my budget then, because I don't have to make what? Car payments. So, anyways, God's word is true, In Abram, this is the point, Abram knew it. Think about it. This is thousands of years ago. This is before the law. This isn't part of the Mosaic Covenant. Abram is before the covenant. And already, in the word of God, is the concept of tithing. Melchizedek didn't come and Abram didn't look at him and say, oh, hey, Melchizedek, you're a priest of the Most High God. Here, here's a 10. Here's a 20. You know, whatever the 10 or 20 would have been at that time. He didn't tip him. He tithed. And so my question to you is, are you a tither or a tipper? God ain't waiting your table, folks. He owns the establishment. Do you get it? I mean, sometimes we treat, the, we, we treat waitresses and waiters at a restaurant better than we do God. We certainly spend more at a restaurant than we spend in church sometimes. It was amazing. I, mean, not, uh, I want this to be said. I don't count the money. It's very rare. The only time I'll even co-sign back there is if there's only one guy here who can do that. I purposely don't do that. I don't keep the finances. I don't do the treasury work. I don't know what any of you give. I really don't. I don't want to know. So I can preach this pretty hard. Okay. So you know it. If this is for you, this is for you. You can't tip God. If you think you want to just be a tipper for God, just remember that's an indicator of your relationship with him, and it's also how he'll treat you as well. So it depends what you want from God. Do you want a tip from God, or do you want the best from him? Our alliances are the third thing. Not only is our reputation, our giving... But our alliances. This is really powerful. I mean, Abram comes back. He's just delivered all the people of Sodom and, Gomorrah. and Again, not just Lot. You've got you to picture the, the magnitude of the victory that, that um, Abram has here with maybe 500 guys. I mean, he's gone after multiple kings who have just destroyed all these different cities. No one's, you know, fortified cities. They weren't able to, to stand up to him. And Abram goes out with his servants. Not an organized army. And not only to destroy all those guys, but he brings everybody back. And all the property that was taken. All the bounty that was taken as well. And he comes back into the, the, the Valley Shavad, the King's Valley. And who happens to meet him there? The King of Sodom. <laughs> now, you know what we think of the, the, the city of Sodom. Right? That's where we get our word sodomy from. Okay, It was a, it was a city of um, sin. Disgusting sin. Ill repute. It's why God later comes down and destroys the city with, with, with fire and brimstone. They didn't even learn their lesson here when they were allowed to go into captivity. And so, an awful city of, of just wrongful things going on. Homosexuality and, and such. And so this this guy comes out and he meets Abram. Now, I, this, I, I love, sometimes I think this is very humorous. I mean, if you're the king of Sodom, what position are you in right now? Are you in a position of power, prestige, negotiations? None. And this guy comes out and says, hey, just give me back all the people, and hey, I'll let you have all the goods. Excuse me? <laughs> you could kill him. Uh, who are you? I am now the king of Sodom, dude. And I am also the king of Gomorrah. You are nothing. You have what you have. What do you have? Nothing. Ah, ha! Ah, you're right! Scrabble! Get on your knees! Right? But at the same time, same moment, happenstance, coincidence. Isn't it amazing how coincidence just happens so many times? you have the king of decadence there and you have the king of righteousness who comes walking in. And the king of decadence is saying, just give me back the people and I'll give you all these things. kind of sounds like Satan with Jesus, you know. says, you know, look at all these things in the world, just bow down and worship me and I'll give you all these things. And Jesus says, man, get out of my face. You know, I know he didn't say that, I'm paraphrasing. But anyways, and so you got this king of decadence saying, you know, I'm going to give you all these things and, and then there's the king of righteousness. And Abram turns around and does what? Takes a tenth of all that stuff. He lays up the treasures of the wicked for the righteous. Isn't what the book of Proverbs says? And, and so he takes a tenth of the king of decadence's stuff and turns around and gives it to the king of righteousness. And then with the rest of it, he turns around to the king of decadence and says what? I don't want a stinking sandal strap from you. Because I never wanted to be said that you made me rich. I have sworn to God most high that I would have no allegiance or alliance with you. Who are you looking to to bless your socks off? Who are you really trusting? Are you looking for for a windfall from the world? Or are you looking for a windfall from God? Now, God does lay up the the treasures of the wicked for the righteous. We do read that in the Word of God. And clearly, Melchizedek received a a huge windfall that day, didn't he? But he didn't receive it from the king of Sodom. Do you get it? The king of Sodom didn't turn around and say, Hey, and I'll give you a big donation to your favorite charity here. Abram said, it doesn't matter what you want to do, it's mine. God gave it to what? To me. How did God give him all that? By letting him win the battle. But then he turned around and did what? And gave everything back to the king of Sodom. And said, I don't want any of your contaminated stuff. It's really interesting things. What alliances have you made? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, You can't serve God and mammon. Abram chose to fellowship with the king of righteousness and peace and to separate himself from the prince of decadence and chaos. What would you have chosen? What would you have chosen that day in that valley knowing that you had the windfall of a lifetime, millions of dollars of goods at your disposal? Would you have taken it? Or would you have said, Nope. I don't want your stuff. God's my provider. It's a hard decision. Jesus said you can't serve the world and God at the same time. You'll either love the one and despise the other, or you'll serve the one and hate the other. So where are your treasures being laid up? Are you laying them up on earth, or are you laying them up in heaven? Now, that's the practical side. Um, we see Abraham's choice there. But, prophetically, there is the the important section of the priesthood um, of Christ. And again, if it wasn't for this writing in the book of Hebrews, whether it's Paul or somebody else who writes it, the only other reference to this passage comes from Psalm 110, verse 4. Yahweh has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, talking about the future Messiah to come. That this Messiah to come, would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is important before we get into the Hebrews. And you can turn to Hebrews 6 and 7, because that's where we're going to be. Okay? Hebrews 6 and 7. Um, But what do we know from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, about priests and kings? What couldn't they be? One and the same. That's exactly right. They, They couldn't be one and the same. In fact, Saul... Didn't want to wait any longer for Samuel. And what did he do? No, he didn't go into the temple. He offered sacrifice. And what happened? He lost the kingship because of it. That's exactly right. Um, uh, Uzziah, Uzziah, when he was a great king, did mighty things. But later on in life, he got full of himself. Does anybody know what Uzziah did? Say again. He went into the temple. He went into the temple and was beginning to offer a, 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 an incense sacrifice. And what happened to him? He turned into a leper on the spot. On the spot became a leper, and the priests were skewing him out of the him out of the temple. Ah! You know, and he spent the rest of his life as a leper. One of the greatest kings, if not the greatest king Israel ever had. Amazing, but he got full of himself. So you could not be king and priests at the same time. But interesting, Messiah, we're told, would be that. He would be the prophet, the priest, and the king, all three wrapped up into one. And so we're told here in, in Psalm 110 that this Messiah, who would be of the line of David, would also be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, because he could not be of the line of Judah and of the line of Levi at the same time. And so, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, the first thing we see in this is that, that Melchizedek blessed or yeah, blessed Abram. So begin at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, being priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and such. Verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarchs Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And, note, and indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come through the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradictions, the lesser is blessed by the better. And so the first thing we see is that Melchizedek, the first thing says, Blessed art thou, Abram, of the Lord God most high. And so Melchizedek blesses Abram. Now, growing up, um, whenever we would, we would have communion in the Lutheran church, um, the kids were allowed to come up as well. And, and those who were confirmed would be able to take part in communion. But the kids would come up, and then the pastor would lay his hand on the head of the child and bless them okay convey a spiritual blessing now in that in that light the understanding was the pastor in that setting is what the spiritual leader okay and so he's conveying that thing and so the greater conveys the blessing to the the lesser okay when you go from a blessing from a lesser to a greater do you know what that's called that's no, called a plea <laughs> it's called a plea okay that's that's you praying okay that that's you you praying to God. And you can, you can give him glory in blessing him, but it's always attached to the plea of, of what you're going to get back. Okay? And so Melchizedek, first of all, we see, is it blesses Abram. But secondly, he received the tithes from Abram. And so we're told as well here, as we just read, that that in Abram, in his loins, were the future descendants, the, the sons of Jacob, if you would, one of which was Levi, who was given that Special privilege of being the, the, the tribe that was going to serve Yahweh. And so when people came and brought their tithes from Israel, they came specifically and gave their tithes to who? The, the, the Levites, the descendants of Levi. And so the logical progression here of what's going on is, so if Levi would then was in the, the loins of Abram, and Abram was giving the tithes to Melchizedek, then Levi, by representation, was giving a tithe to Melchizedek. And so, therefore, indicating that the priesthood of Melchizedek was greater than the priesthood of Levi. Which then leads us into the concept of the order of Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek, we're told, replaces then the order of Aaron. And it goes on and says, listen, if if the order of Aaron or the order of Levites, okay, because Levites were a descendant of Aaron, okay, Aaron was the high priest, Aaron was the high priest, if that Aaronic priesthood was, was all there needed to be, there wouldn't be, need to be what? A replacement. But as we see later in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, where it says that, you know, that every priest continues to stand offering the sacrifices because the sacrifices that he makes are never what? Adequate. They never are enough. But he has to continually, daily, offering the sacrifice. But Jesus Christ... When he offered his sacrifice, did what? He sat down once and for all. Because his sacrifice was accepted once and for all. He never has to make another one at all. Jesus Christ offered himself once, and that was all he needed to do. So, the ironic priesthood was replaced by the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ. That by itself then shows the, the greater, uh, the superiority of Christ's priesthood. And then finally... This is really kind of cool. And that is that the order of Melchizedek is, is an eternal priesthood. You and I right now have the same high priest. That is Jesus Christ. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 4 that we don't have a high priest who cannot be touched with our infirmities. But he can in every way sympathize with us. And so therefore we can what? chapter 10 tells us we can enter with boldness into the throne room of of, of God not because of my own righteousness but because of what Jesus Christ has done for me and I know that he hears me whatever I pray and he then is my only mediator between me and God what does that mean it means you don't have to come to me for absolution of your sin that's news for a lot of people in other religious, um, quote-unquote, Christian realms. Every week in the Lutheran Church, we would have the absolution of sins. We would confess our sins as a group together. We would, um, boy, you know, if I, if I go to it, I could, I could start quoting it. Right now it's kind of hard. Um, we confess that we are sinners Anyways, they do First John 1, 9, and stuff like that. Anyways, but it's just a ritual. Every week you, you, you say the same prayer, you say the same thing over and over again, and then the pastor does what? The authority that's invested in me as, the, as, a, as a servant of the Most High God, I do absolve you from all the sins, and da-da-da. So, so, the, so the priest or the pastor comes up and he absolves you of your sins. That's not biblical. We have one high priest that is Jesus Christ. You don't have to come to me, confess your sins, you don't have to confess them to anybody else. You confess them to God. So even with our kids, we train them that when they have sinned against us or when they sinned against one of their brothers or sisters, the first person they need to talk to is who? God. Then after that, they need to go talk to the person they've sinned against and ask that person to forgive them. But the very first and foremost thing they need to do is they need to go to God and they need to confess their sins and ask God to forgive them of their sins. Now, what is the purpose, the function of that priesthood? What does the priesthood do? What are we told that he does? He offers for us the sacrifice. Jesus Christ offered that eternal sacrifice for you. So, the question is, have you accepted it? Really, right now, I know you're in a church. But the question is, are you part of the new covenant? Are you here under the priesthood of Jesus Christ? If you're not, then you're under the Old Covenant still. And you have to be offering animal sacrifices at the temple, which doesn't exist. Does that make sense? Looking forward to what? Messiah who's to come, who will fulfill those things. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, behold, today is the day of salvation. Christ has offered himself once for all for you. If you proclaim that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then like a brum, it will be revealed in your life by your actions. And so, in conclusion, the same questions we asked before, what's your reputation? What would you be called? If Jesus Christ really is the high priest of your soul, what indicator is there in your life? Secondly, are you a tither or are you a tipper? What's your standard for giving? Is it God's standard or is it the world's standard? I remember meeting with an individual years ago, helping them go through their budget, and their father was there as well. And and the person was talking to me about the biblical standard, and they were talking about tithing and what tithing was about. And I was teaching them about um, tithing on your gross, not on your net. Because if you're tithing on your net and on your gross, you're saying that the government gets the first cut, and that's not true. The government doesn't get the first cut. God gets the first cut. He wants the first fruits. And that's what the problem with Cain and Abel was, that Cain would just want to give him some, and Abel wanted to give him the first fruits. He wanted to give him the best. God wants your best. He wants the first tenth. And so that's the opportunity the grow. And I remember that individual's dad saying, Oh, no, no. People we we don't do that anymore. Uh, you don't have to do that. Uh, listen, you want to put something like that in your budget, $10, $20, $5, whatever, you can do what? You can tip God, give God a tip. But God's purpose for the tithe has never changed. What was for the purpose for the tithe in the Old Testament? Say again. To provide for His house. What were you going to say, Don? So knowledge that God has given you everything. That's your first fruits concept, your blessing. But the actual purpose then of giving is, is to give give it to God. But it was to provide for the house of God. Provide for the needs of the temple. For the, I mean, who ultimately were the recipients of it? The Levites. The priests. So they could do their job. Now, I know, and, and I, a lot of times I shy away from this. And, and before the Lord, I can't shy away. If you have ten tithing families, ten families who believe that God gets, should get what he has, do you know what you get? You get a full-time pastor. Because that pastor then lives off the what? The median of the, of the body. Now I understand at that point it's too big, you need a facility. But if you calculate it out, if you had 20 families who tithed, you would not only have a full-time pastor, but you would also have a facility that you could use. Do you know why most churches don't? Because they're full of tippers, not tithers. And can I be straight, since I don't know what everybody gives? It's full of disobedient Christians. If you're a tipper and not a tither, you're not walking according to the standards of God. What is your moral aspiration? Do you desire to be holy as he is holy? Abraham said, I don't want anything from you, king of decadence. I only want the things of God. What's your, what's your moral aspiration, your moral standard? Do you want to be holy as God is holy? Or are you willing to accept just a little bit of decadence in your life? You know, nobody's perfect anyway. Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize. Is your all on the altar that he may alter all that you are? Years ago, I heard a song that that was the chorus of. I loved it. Is your all on the altar that he may alter all that you are? Unless you are willing, your tithe, your talents, and and your, um, your time, to lay those on the altar of Christ, he'll never be able to mold you into everything he wants you to be. I mean, he can do it even with you don't want to, but he doesn't operate that way. That's why Romans twelve one says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your whole reasonable act of worship before God. And don't be conformed to the world, but rather be transformed in the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Is your all on the altar? Let's pray, and then we're going to sing... Um, As you're all on the altar, a sacrifice laid. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, you have not withheld anything from us. You, because you loved us so much, you gave your very own son, the one whom you loved, that we might have the great riches of your kingdom. Lord, I I thank you for, clearly you have written these former things for our learning, and so I'm thankful for, the, um, the account, the record of, of Abraham and of Ram and how you dealt with him and, and how he lived. And Lord, I know that he wasn't a perfect man. He, he, he fell in so many ways, and yet, Lord, we see in him this desire for righteousness and this desire to honor and magnify you. His willingness to give everything for you. Lord, I pray that we would mirror that. Lord, we know that you've said in your word that the first tenth belongs to you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be those who give according to your standard. And even beyond, Lord, that I believe that you desire for us to to give even beyond that tenth, knowing that that is just a minimum, but being a cheerful giver, loving to give, Lord, that, that we would desire to give beyond what is even required. So God, I pray that we would be that as well. And I pray that we would do that even as a body, Lord, that as the, as the, um, the gifts are brought in, that as a body, that we don't just give back toward missions and toward whatever else um, that which we are required to give, but Lord, that we want to give. We want to be about your business and about your work. Lord, help us to pursue the things of righteousness and not the things of the world that you may be glorified in us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.